wonderful to be here today, and thank you, Pastor Wade, for the opportunity to, to serve with you this weekend. And uh, Jason, you know, when I first met him, was six years old, and he had flaming red hair, believe it or not. And you could tell him a mile away, a little, a little Scottish laddie, and uh, his accent was a little different back in those days. But uh, it's great to, to see him and Beth and to catch up with them also this weekend. Well, let's pray together as we begin. Lord Jesus, these are important days. These are days where your body comes together to think about the world, the nations, the peoples that are still waiting to hear this good news for the very first time. Lord, I pray that you would call forth laborers. Lord, you ask us to to call out laborers from the midst of the body, and we pray that today. We ask that you would raise up those who would have a heart and a passion and a vision to go and to live in the hard places and to seek to reach the difficult peoples. But also, Lord, not to forget about our own backyard and and to remember those around us in our neighborhood who have yet to really understand the gospel. And so I pray that this week will be a week of encouragement and challenge to consider the nations and our part that we'll play in reaching them with the good news of Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. His strong and calloused hands showed the the marks of a furniture maker. His calloused feet are the marks of someone who took the good news to people all over his province. He had heard the gospel, the good news of Christ, from an IMB missionary, and and he had learned how to develop a, a faith garden to provide food for his family, faith meaning food always in the home. And although he appreciated the agricultural training he received, He appreciated more hearing the gospel and coming to know Christ as his Savior. And now for many years, August has been traveling his province, bringing the good news of Christ to those that have yet to hear that good news. And and he's led a growing network of disciples and churches throughout that province in a very unreached part of Indonesia. Well, he got a name from a, a friend of his who was interested in the gospel, and he was trying to find his home one day, and it was getting a little late in the afternoon. It was beginning to, to get dark. The sun sets about six o'clock on the equator, and he hadn't found the home. And he, he met these two guys on the street, and they demanded money. And they got into a little bit of a, a scuffle and a tussle, and his Bible fell out of his bag. And they stopped and they said, What's that? They said, Well, that's my Bible. And I said, Well, where are you going? And he gave them the name of the person he was going to visit, and they said, Well, we know that person. We're going to take you there. You shouldn't be on these roads this night. It's not safe to be out here. Well, they took him on to that home that night, and they stayed to hear the gospel. They received the Lord that night. Their names are Tiger and Tattoo. So when you get to heaven, you'll have to look up two unusual names in the Lamb's Book of Life, Tiger and Tattoo. Carl Henry has said the good news is only good news if it gets there on time. It got there on time for Tiger and Tattoo, but the time is ticking on in our world. Every day in our world, 155,252 people die and enter, as far as we know, a Christless eternity. Every day around the world, 155,252 people die without knowing Jesus Christ 
And yet the Lord has given us a great commission to go. He gave it to us 2,000 years ago, and yet the nations are still waiting, some for the very first time, to hear this good news. Now, how many of you have, have heard of the Great Commission? All right, most of you are raising your hand. That's good because that makes you an 18 percenter church. And what do I mean by that? According to latest Barna statistics, Barna research, 82% of the average churchgoers in America today do not know what the Great Commission is and can't find it in their Bible. And so I praise God that you know that that means that we are to go to those nations that are represented by that map right there. Our challenge is to reach every last one of them. In Matthew 28, 18 to 20, which we'll turn there, if you have your Bibles, and I, I hope you do, let's look at Matthew 28, and we're going to dive into this great commission this morning. We're going to start in verse 16. Matthew 28, 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or to obey all that I have commanded you. And, lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age." So those are our marching orders. That's the, the mandate we have been given is to go. But we, we can't go unless we go under someone's authority. And Christ has given us his authority to go and to reach all nations. Now, does Jesus really have authority in our world today? From Memphis to Medina, from Hernando to Halifax, does, does Jesus have all authority well, yes, he does. Amen. I hear that in the back. He does have all authority. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it be, Matthew begins right from the beginning to show us that Jesus has all authority over all peoples. Matthew 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So right there in the beginning, Matthew is beginning to lay out Jesus' authority. He is the son of David and the son of Abraham. Well, when Abraham, before Abraham had the covenant with God, he was a Gentile, an uncircumcised Gentile. He was not part of, of the nation yet. And God made that covenant with him in, in Genesis 12, but it wasn't until 17 that, that he was circumcised and became a part. And David was, of course, king of Israel. And a, a covenant was made with David in 2 Samuel 7, the promise given to both of them that they would, there would be a seed. And Matthew points to Jesus as the promised seed covering all peoples, the son of David and the son of Abraham. He's signaling that this Christ, this Messiah, would have all authority over all peoples. And later in that book, Matthew says in Matthew 24, 14, that this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to all nations the whole world as a testimony, and then the end will come. So the mandate of the Great Commission flows from his 
authority. Now, Matthew spends 27 chapters laying out the authority of Christ. In chapter 2, he reminds us of those wise men who came from a far distance and they bowed down to worship a small child because they knew this child was unique. They knew this child was a king. He would have all authority in the world. They brought him gifts befitting one who has all authority. In chapter 4, Jesus unveils his authority over Satan. Satan came and tempted Jesus in the, in the wilderness there, and, and he tried to get him to take earthly authority. And Jesus said, no, that is not mine to, to take. He knew something else was afoot. There was a greater plan in place, a plan that would take him all the way to the cross to die for every people and every nation and every tribe and every language. Also there in, in chapter 8, Jesus unveils his authority over disease. Jesus reaches out and touches a leper, unheard of in his day. You don't touch lepers. And then there's the centurion servant who's, who's sick, and Jesus said, well, I'll come with you. And he said, no, you don't need to. Stay here. You can just speak it, and I know it's going to happen. And he, he marveled over the faith of that centurion, and, and indeed, his servant was healed at the very moment Jesus said it. He found out when he got back, and then he gets home that night, and his mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law, was sick, and he takes Peter's mother-in-law by the hand and heals her, and she gets up and serves them. Also in chapter 8, Jesus unveils his authority over demons. He, he casts out evil spirits from those who are op oppressed and possessed by the enemy. They're released from bondage. He unveils his, his authority over nature. Also in chapter 8, when they're out on that boat and the storm comes up and the disciples are afraid they're going to die on this, this lake. And he said, oh, why are you, why are you afraid? Be still, be calm. And they marveled. Who is this man who has authority over nature? And then in, in verse 9, he unveils his authority over, over sin. Now the, the scribes are beside themselves. Okay, he heals the paralytic, that's one thing. But then what does he say? Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. That's blasphemy. You can't do that. Who can only do that? God. That's right. He's unveiling his authority over sin. He unveils his authority over death in, in chapter 9. They laughed at him as he walked into the house where there all the, the mourners were crying and wailing. <laughs> She's dead. What are you talking about? She's sleeping. He walks into the room and reaches out and takes the little girl by the hand. And the synagogue official receives back his daughter alive. In chapter 9, he unveils his authority over blindness. Two men are on the side of the road crying out to him. And he, he goes into their home and he said, what do you want me to do for you? He said, we, you want to be made well to see? And they said, yes, yes, please. And he heals their blindness. In verse 14, Jesus unveils his authority over a massive food shortage. 5,000 people without anything to eat after a long day, and there weren't any Chick-fil-A's nearby. And so he said, well, what do you have? Well, 
We've got uh, two fish and five loaves, and he prays over those, and they pick up 12 basketfuls later. That wasn't lost on those 12 disciples that Jesus can provide. And then in verse 27, he's dead in the tomb. They make it as secure as possible. And what happens on Easter morning? That stone is rolled away because there is nothing that can hold Christ in that tomb. He is alive, and he's alive today. So because he submitted to the will of the Father who, who sent him, Jesus now possesses in all its fullness lordship over the entire universe. So what does that mean for us? Well, our eyes ought to be fixed on him. He is the Lord of all. One day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. For those persecutors today in our world and, and those world leaders who are heavily persecuting almost half the world's population in China and in India combined, one day President Xi's knee will bow and Prime Ministers Modi and, and India will bow and acknowledge Jesus Christ has all authority in our world today. He is Lord. He is King. I didn't understand that when I was 18 years old. I was playing football in college and, and reached one of my, my dreams, and, and yet there was an emptiness inside me. There was no peace. There was a searching. There was a longing. There had to be more to life than this. I was playing at as Arizona Western College, the Arizona Western Matadors. How's that for a mascot. My roommate was a Christian. He started sharing the gospel with me. And one night he said, you know, do you mind if I read my Bible? And I said, I don't care. You can read your Bible. Well, he started reading out loud. And then he read it out loud every night. And we got into discussions. And I, I began to realize that just because I'd gone to church and just because I knew some Bible stories, that didn't make me a believer. I realized that I was a sinner, that I needed forgiveness of my sin. I needed to know Christ personally in my life. I needed to make a choice. And I got down in my dorm room bed when I was 18 years old, and I asked Christ to come into my life and make me a new person. And he gave me a peace and a joy that I'd never experienced in my life before. Even though trying to reach each one of my goals, there would be a short-term burst of, of happiness, I'd never experienced joy like I experienced when I came to know Christ in my life in 1977. My life hasn't been the same since. And when we begin to, to live our lives for Christ, we realize that this isn't just head knowledge. He's not thinking about head knowledge here. In Romans 10, 9, Paul writes, if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. It doesn't say if we believe in our head. If we know these things about Jesus, but it's confessing with our mouth, believing in our heart that Jesus is alive and he has authority of your life. Whether we acknowledge it or not, he has authority in our lives. And so that's where the mandate for the Great Commission flows from. It, it flows from this one who has all authority. Secondly, our mission is to make disciples. To make disciples. After reminding them of his authority over, over heaven and earth, and he, he challenges them, he charges them to go and make disciples. That's the, the command in this passage. There's one command, and it's to make 
disciples. The message puts it this way. Jesus, undeterred, went right ahead and gave his charge. God authorized and commanded me to commission you. Go out and train everyone you meet far and near in this way of life, marking them by baptism in the threefold name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then instruct them in the practice of all I've commanded you. I'll be with you as you do this day after day after day, right up to the end of the age. So how do we do that? Well, it says we need to go, right? We've got to go. We can't make disciples if we sit in front of a TV all day and watch football games. Now, I know we all love to do that this time of year, but we've, to make disciples, you have to go. You have to get out of your house. You have to go 10 feet next door, or you have to go 10,000 miles away, depending on where he's called you to make disciples. But we've all got to go. This coming year, across the Southern Baptist Convention, there's a go-to challenge that young people would go for two years after college, give two years of their life in America or overseas. At the International Mission Board, we've added 50 journeyman slots for this coming year in order to be ready to send extra journeymen out to the field this coming year. So we've got to be ready to go. Sometimes the hardest place to go is across the street. You know, sometimes it's pretty easy to go 10,000 miles and go someplace where it's unique and different. And yeah, I'm there to do this mission. But then the day in and day out, as Jesus said, he'll be with you day by day by day. He's going to be with you in your neighborhood day by day by day, in your workplace, in your school, in your office. That's where we're called to make disciples. If we're not over there, we're doing it here. And so we've got to go. And it says also we've got to baptize. Now, around the world, that is the line in the sand for most people. Many, many, many people have been martyred for their faith because they've been baptized. It's not just making a profession of faith. But when you go into the waters of baptism, you are identifying with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. It's a powerful, powerful symbol around the world. And people have died because they believe that Christ has all authority and they want to give their lives to him. So have you been baptized? After coming to faith in Christ, it's the first step of obedience After you receive Jesus, the next step is to identify with him in baptism. To go under that water and say, I have been crucified with Christ, and no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So we baptize people, and then then we teach them to obey. It begins with us. We have to obey the scriptures ourselves first. So this, this process that we we follow Christ and we're, we're learning to walk with Him and we learn to be obedient disciples of His. And how does that change begin? How do we begin to grow as a disciple? Well, three words. Seeking is one word. Jesus came, Luke 19.10. He says He came to seek and to save those who are lost. And so we begin to learn how to share our faith with others, how to share the gospel in a clear way so people will understand what it means to be a follower of Christ. And then we need to be growing. We need to be putting down roots as disciples. Just like a tree rooted and by a river that's flowing, it puts down roots and it grows strong and it bears fruit. So if there's no roots, there's no fruits. And so we put down roots by 
abiding in Christ through prayer and the Word on a daily basis, we, we start to grow. And then we multiply ourselves. Now, Jesus didn't say, go and grow as a disciple of mine. What did he say? Go and make. Go and make disciples. That means we begin to multiply ourselves into other people. We, we pour out our lives into other people. Is there anyone you're pouring your life into today? Are you making one disciple? If you have children at home, definitely you're making disciples. But are there others that you're pouring into? You're meeting with them, challenging them, encouraging them, being iron on iron for one another and multiplying yourself into other people. The great thing about disciple making is that we grow. It challenges us to grow personally when we're making other disciples. And, and you know, Jesus doesn't have a plan B. That's it. We're to go and make disciples, all of us. It's ingenious because everybody can do it. Fishermen and tax collectors can do it. Everybody, it's all of our, our responsibility to be a part of, of making disciples of the nations. So that mandate of the Great Commission flows from his authority and, and then the, uh, the mission is to make disciples. And then the scripture gives us some pretty clear metrics about how we're to do that, where we're supposed to go. We're supposed to go from one person to 7.2 billion people. Now, it's a little overwhelming, I know, to hear those numbers. We, we lived in South Asia. I was responsible for leading about 500 missionaries seeking to reach about 1.7 billion people. That's a little bit of a daunting task. You know how you do it? One at a time. One at a time. One at a time. And you make disciples who will then, they'll go and do it one at a time. And we begin to multiply that out as we make disciples among these peoples. And that's how we begin to reach out. Now, we're, we're supposed to start right here in Hernando, around Mississippi, and then... And then I guess some of you would make disciples in Alabama <laughs> or Louisiana. But yes, we're to make disciples across our country and then to the ends of the earth. So there are three metrics I want us to be reminded of in Scripture this morning. Mark 16, 15 is the first one. It's the individual metric. And then he told them, go into all the world and preach the good news to... Everyone. Well, that pretty much takes it all in right there. Everyone. So from Mississippi to Marrakesh to the jungles of Madagascar, that's our challenge, is take that gospel to every person. Then there's the ethnic metric. Jesus said there in Matthew 28, 19, go, there or go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That word in the Greek is panta ta ethne. It's all ethnic groups. Now, when you're out and you're, you're seeking to reach people, and the gospel is moving among a people, and then all of a sudden you try to go to the next people, and it slows down or stops, you know you're in a new people group. Maybe you need to think about a new strategy, a new way to reach into that people group and, and begin to find some open, uh, open ways to get into them, some new bridges to build to try to reach them. And so there's that ethnic metric, the people group metric that we've got to think about. And challenges that we face in seeking to do that. Are they Hindi speakers or Urdu speakers or German speakers? And, 
And what's their worldview? What's their background? Are they communists? Are they Hindus? Are they Muslims? Are they Buddhists? We've got to take those things into account to try to reach that person from that worldview. And so it's a challenge. Then there's the the geographic metric. Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. I would dare say that we're almost in every geopolitical country. Then you come to the country of the Maldives, a country of a beautiful string of islands, but they claim to be 100% Muslim. And every missionary I know so far that's tried to go in there has been kicked out. They're adamant to keep Christianity out of their country, and so we've got to pray for countries like the Maldives. But then there are some places around our world that are surprisingly dark and difficult. In the United Kingdom today, if you're in your 20s, there's a 97% chance that you don't know a Christian and you've never been to church. These are the people that brought the gospel to us. In Germany today, it's less than 2% Christian where the Reformation began under Martin Luther's leadership there. And today there are twice as many Muslims living in Germany as there are evangelical Christians. There's challenges around our world. And there are unreached peoples. And we heard that term earlier today. What does that mean? An unreached people group is a people group less than 2% Christian. So today, there are 7,093 unreached people groups remaining in our world today. They represent 4.5 billion in our world. Over half the world's population are in unreached people groups. And within those unreached people groups, there are hidden peoples. There's 3,199 what we call UUPGs. Those are unengaged, unreached people groups. They have no access to the gospel. There are no believers among them. There are no churches among them. And as far as we know, no one is trying to reach them yet. Jesus gave us this mandate 2,000 years ago. And still there are people waiting to hear this good news. I've, I've stood on the streets of Delhi and I asked a man, do you know Jesus? He said, no. Where does he live? having no idea who Christ is, even in a city of 25 million people. How many of you heard of the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem? It's that place where the Jews go that is closest to the Holy of Holies that they can get, and they write prayers out and they stick them in the walls of the Wailing Wall. I think today we need a virtual Wailing Wall for these unreached peoples. Peoples that would come and they would lift up these people groups that God would bring good news to these peoples. And it's happening. Among Southern Baptist churches that take on these people groups, one in Arkansas prayed for five years before they made their first contact with a believer. And then when they went for the first time, they found out that in the previous five years, once they started praying, 15 people had come to Christ. This was a totally unreached, unengaged people group before. Prayer makes a difference. Get some of these people groups from your missionaries that are here this week and begin praying for them that that God would make an inroad into their lives, into their peoples, 
into their communities and into their countries. In order to do that, we, we have to partner together across our convention. And so as a representative of your Southern Baptist missionaries, your IMB missionaries, International Mission Board missionaries, I want to say thank you. Thank you for giving to the cooperative program. We receive money through the cooperative program to help us do what we do overseas. Thank you for giving to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Every dollar you give goes directly to international missions on the other side of the world. And those dollars are used to bring the good news of Christ, the Bible, a testimony, a training to train other people how to do this. And your missionaries will tell you stories of how they use your Lottie Moon dollars every year as you provide for them to be on the field and be focused, intensely focused on the main thing, on the task that we have been called to do. The mandate is to go, to make disciples of all nations. And they're still waiting. There's still tigers and tattoos out there waiting to hear the gospel for the very first time. Will you go? Is the Lord speaking to you? Now, I spent a couple of years in a church recently between retirement and going back with the IMB, and we started a work called The Next Season for those from 60 to 85. There may be a few people in that category here today. It's to challenge you to use your gifts, your experience, your education, to take it overseas and use it for God's glory, maybe for two years. There's the master's program that you can go and work with missionaries on the field. There are different ways to use your gifts at every age. So mom and dad, are you willing to say yes to your son or daughter who's feeling that call? Grandparents, will you bless your grandchildren to go and to share the gospel? And will you yourselves consider going to bring this good news. This commission that we've been given still stands today. Will we go and be a part of completing it in our generation?